Hello and welcome back to the GoAU podcast. Today's guest needs no introduction. She is the first and only athlete to win all three of the IAU championships. That's the 50k, 100k and 24 hour. She also won the 27-day Comrades Marathon and has several world's best times at ultramarathon distance. We had a few technical difficulties during the recording, but I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm delighted to have Camille Heron as a guest today. Camille was the IAU Ultra Runner of the Year for 2015, 2018 and 2019. Camille has won World Championship titles at 50k, 100k and 24 hours. Camille also has the current world's best performance for 24 hours with a distance of 270.116 kilometers. That was set at the 24 hour World Championships in Brieve back in 2019. And seeing as we didn't have a World Championship last year in 2020, you are the current 24 hour world champion. So Camille, welcome to the podcast. And to start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into ultra running? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, John. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was a marathoner for a long time. I basically focused on the marathon for about 10 years and uh, made the Olympic marathon trials in the United States in 2008 or 2008, 2012, 2016. And I was running a lot of marathons, uh, back-to-back marathons on weekends and just lots and lots of marathons. And uh, several people started putting the bug in my ear that I should try ultra running. Uh, so I ran my first ultra at Two Oceans in 2013 and uh, didn't go quite as well as I'd hoped. I ran a little bit too conservative because I was going a little bit longer than I ever had and uh, didn't know how to push myself. And I finished 10th at Two Oceans in 2013. Uh, then I tried to run Comrades in 2014 and I had a stomach virus and a fever and I made it 83 kilometers. Uh, I think I was in maybe third or fourth place and I passed out and hit the concrete and uh, just had a really, really bad day. And I was actually at the point where I was going to retire from competitive running. Uh, I was working full time in research and uh, had pretty much done everything I could as a marathoner. I had made a US team in the marathon, uh, which was kind of, the, the pinnacle of excellence for me as a marathoner. Uh, so I didn't know if I was going to be good at ultra running. And I was really tired at that point. I was very focused on my day job. And I just had this feeling that I needed to try again and commit myself to ultra running. So I uh, focused on recommitting myself in 2015. Uh, I went back to more of a marathon training approach. I uh, had, for my first two ultras, I was doing more, uh, trying to extend my long runs and run more mileage and it made me tired and I just wasn't enjoying it. So I went back to more of a marathon training approach in 2015 and that's when the magic started to happen. So I won the world titles for 100K and 50K and I set a world best for 50 miles and uh basically a star was born (laughs) i'm wondering now that because you were a decent marathon runner did you find it a bit of a risk actually going into the ultra marathon were you 
fairly committed to the ultramarathon or did you were you kind of half thinking you might still go back to the marathon yeah at, at that point uh i think i had made my third olympic marathon trials for uh 2016 so uh i was kind of at the point where i had already focused on the marathon and i felt like i could try something different and it was really you know a shot in the dark i i feel like uh, I, I just I feel like Billy Elliot doing ballet for the first time that when I ran my first 100k which was the furthest I'd ever gone I just had this feeling like I was born for it it just felt so comfortable much more comfortable than I'd ever felt in the marathon so uh, I wish I tried ultra running sooner uh, and it just it's felt like the further I go the the more I feel like I come alive and I feel like I'm more in my element and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do so so what I think of it you mentioned the, the comrades there you have previously won the comrades and this year it's cancelled were you planning on running it again this year yeah that was going to be really tough to decide what to do uh i having already won comrades uh i feel a huge relief because that's obviously a huge achievement i don't have as much pressure on me to do it um and so i felt like i needed to focus more on the american races um which western states is kind of our version of comrades i guess you could say in in america so if Comrades had happened in June, I was planning to focus on Western States this year. Uh, but if Comrades had gotten moved to the fall, I guess it just depended on the date and how it coincided with uh, the 24, 24-hour World Championship in October. Um, but I, I felt like this year I was probably going to take a pass on Comrades if it had happened and uh, focus on Western States in June and the uh, UTMB uh, in at the end of August and then the 24-hour world championship. And have your plans changed much with comrades being cancelled? Will that affect how you're going to train? Will, will you just keep doing what you've been doing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was really, like I said, I was really kind of up in the air. On, it just depended on the date. And I felt like it was kind of a bit of a lower priority for me uh, that I wanted to focus on Western States and UTMB and the 24-hour world championships. But regardless of the distance, I mean, I train like a marathoner. I train very comparably to how I trained as a marathoner. Uh, I guess the, the biggest difference is uh, leading up to a big race, whether, you know, it's comrades or the 24 hour world championship. I usually like to do a marathon or 50 K uh, during the three to six weeks uh, before the race. And so that's pretty much the difference. Uh, when I was a marathoner, I used to run a lot of shorter races to get my legs turning over. Uh, so, so yeah, there's not really much difference in my training besides, you know, just trying to, trying to focus on, you know, marathon as a prep for a longer race versus for the marathon, I do shorter race distances to get my legs turning over. So. Now, as you mentioned training, do you follow a plan or do you just run? I think I do both. <laughs> I think I, I think I just run, but uh, but my my husband Connor is has been my coach for forever uh, since 2004, and uh, and I mean we we work together on you know every day every day we take it a day at a time, and I ask myself how do I feel today, and uh, I mean we we operate on a two week training cycle. 
uh, where I, I have four main hard workouts that I do in a two-week period. And so we just kind of cycle the training and just depending on how I'm feeling on the day uh, dictates, you know, whether I do a workout that day or, you know, if I'm feeling tired, you know, I might just run easy for the day. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think we got to work, work together and do what feels right for that day. And would Connor be the one who kind of sets out your training for the weeks or would you have much of an input into that? Yeah, I, I think it's a mutual thing. Uh, I, I I used to do exactly what he told me to do without thinking about it. Uh, and, and then back in 2009, I started giving feedback to him on how I felt and what I felt like I needed to do. And I felt like I took my running to a whole new level when I started thinking about what I felt like I needed it was literally like every day it was like the perfect workout for that day and I really started to improve a lot so I think it's really important for the athlete to be giving feedback to their coach and to be in tune with you know what they feel like doing for the day and their energy level and you know restfulness and uh you know just how it just all like I, I think if you're more in tune with your body that it really just you know the the pieces start to fit together better so what I find interesting about what you've just been saying there is you're a world champion, you're at the top of your game and you're still listening to a coach. And that's, I think, very, very important that everybody <laughs> needs coaching in some way, don't they? Like, and, and the athlete has to be coachable. Sometimes you just need somebody for a second opinion or to make the decision not to do something. Because I suppose you probably find it very hard not to run. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, I think I've gotten, I've gotten wiser with age at, um, maybe 10 years ago, I was very stubborn and hard headed and, uh, I would get out there and push, you know, through if I was tired one day or, you know, sick or, you know, had a niggle or something that I pretty much pushed through anything. Uh, but definitely with age and, uh, Connor just knows me so well that, you know, he's the reins to pull me back and to, be able to be the sounding board for uh, when, you know, he can tell, you know, if I'm cranky or something or, uh, you know, I'm just be like, yeah, I don't think you should do a workout today, you know, or maybe, maybe the weather's, you know, just total rubbish, you know, and uh, it's, so, you know, it's, it's okay. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool to have, you know, to have a coach and to have that sounding board that I'm not just, you know, relying on one brain. I have two brains to rely on. So do you think Connor would, come on to a podcast and talk a bit about training at a later stage uh, for sure for sure yeah okay you can, might ask him that for me get him on there okay and talking. <laughs> before we move on from training what would your weekly training distance be roughly yeah yeah i just having been a marathoner for a long time and experimented a lot i i like to i'm a scientist by profession and so uh, i think of myself as being a little bit like lydiard uh, that I'm I'm willing to think outside the box and experiment, and so I just from everything I learned as a marathoner, I was able to figure out that my mileage sweet spot is around 120 to 130 miles per week. Uh, I don't know how to convert that to to kilometers. That might be over somewhere over 200 kilometers a week. Um, and so, yeah, I figured that out as a, as a marathoner and I, you know, I've, I've pushed higher. I've gone much higher than that. And I, I found that when I tried to push beyond that threshold, that it just broke me down and made me feel more tired and just felt like I didn't have as much pep in my legs and my body. 
Um, so, so yeah, I've, I've kind of figured out, you know, from past training cycles that the eight weeks leading up to a peak race that uh, I thrive on about 900 to 1,000 miles uh, during that eight-week buildup. And so, you know, I just try to string together as many 120, 130 miles per week, uh, weeks. Um, and then, you know, if I get tired, you know, I'll cut back and, you know, I have a day off and um, it's just about listening to my body. Um, you know, I'll, I'll use this one example. When I was training for the 24-hour world championship in 2019, uh, we had traveled to do a 50K a couple weeks out. And I think we got back to Colorado and I got like hay fever. <laughs> it was around the time that the weather was changing in Colorado and I like had like an allergic reaction to the, the change in the weather, the, the temperature, and there's more dust in the air and that sort of thing. And, and so this is like maybe two, two or three weeks out from the 24 hour world championship. And, um, and we had to, I took a day or two off, like, you know, right before the world championship, just because I like had a lot of congestion. Um, and so it was amazing because I think that helped to rejuvenate me. Right. That I was a little bit, you know, here I'd been, I'd been training really hard. I'd strung together all these workouts and, you know, weeks of high mileage. And suddenly I had hay fever that made, that forced me to take a couple of days off. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we're very in tune with that, you know, that if, if I'm feeling tired, I'm feeling niggles or cutting back, you know, my mileage that I'm, I'm totally okay with that. And that all comes with experience. Like n- not everybody is, as in tune with their with their bodies and I suppose that's that's what's making the difference to how you're performing as well that you know when to do what you should be doing what strategies would you use to maintain that heavy mileage you just mentioned yeah yeah so I did my master's thesis on how to enhance bone recovery with whole body vibration training so basically, I learned how to optimize mechanical stress in such a way that it's anabolic to bone and muscle. And just through my studies, I was able to figure out like, okay, this is applicable to running. Uh, and so it's, it's all in you know, the details and the stru- how you structure your training is super, super important. And so I found that it's, it's best to run multiple times in a day uh, with a four to eight hour rest period between runs. And so I focus on frequency. I focus on running 12 to 13 times a week, at least sometimes three times a day. Uh, And, you know, my, my runs aren't super long, like uh, on a typical day, my main run would be maybe 10 to 14 miles. Uh, and then just come back in the evening time for like another uh, six to seven miles. And my long runs, the furthest I'll go is about 18 to 22 miles. And I don't even, I don't do long runs every week. I would say I do a long run maybe like two to three times a month. And uh, that's something I've kind of figured out with age and experience. I don't need a long run every week. Um, so, so yeah, and, and I don't go very far either. I go about 18 to 22 miles and, uh, and then come back in the evening time for, uh, like five to six miles on, on my long run day. So at, at most I, I will get in, you know, maybe 28 miles, uh, total for the day. 
and and one thing that I should point out that's really popular with the ultra runners is uh, doing back-to-back long runs. Uh, I've never done back-to-back long runs. I have just stuck with what I figured out as a marathoner, uh, which is to keep my long run relatively short and run frequently. Uh, And as I mentioned, you know, I operate on a two-week cycle where I'm doing uh, four main workouts in a two-week period. And the rest of my running between those workouts is just slow, easy jogging. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, you stress yourself and then you rest and you recover. And it's it's really pretty simple as that. Um, The one thing I have figured out since I got into ultra running um, is that I mentioned I do a marathon or a 50K about uh, three to six weeks out from a peak race. And so that kind of serves as my, my longest run for a training block. Uh, and I kind of, I kind the way I see it is if you're going to go longer than 22 miles, you might as well just jump in a race and use that race as an opportunity to practice your uh, nutrition, hydration, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so you get more bang for the buck if you just jump in a race and, and you time it so that it's far enough out that you can recover uh, in time for your peak race. So. Excellent. Now, we don't know what our next race is going to be, but there recently you took part in the Hoka One One Carbon X2 Challenge. How was that? <laughs> It was pretty awesome. I, I mean, we're we're I'm pretty lucky to be sponsored by Hoka Aniani now, and uh, they created this amazing race opportunity for you know a lot of top international ultra runners uh, who were able to come and travel here. And uh, we had a testing protocol. Everybody had to be COVID tested at least three to four times. Uh, and so, you know, they were able to create a safe environment for us to compete and, uh, you know, have an international field, which was really cool. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a new Hoka athlete, so uh, I only knew about the event for six weeks. And so I had taken a break in November and started back training in December. So I had a very, very brief buildup for that and wasn't, wasn't in tip-top shape. I was probably about 80% fit. Uh, but, but at the same time, like, I felt like I ran what I was capable of at the, the effort. Um, I, thought, I thought I ended up having a, a hamstring injury. I, I tried to accelerate during the race, and I, it was kind of like a sprinter uh, pulling up lame. <laughs> Uh, but if I if I hadn't had my injury, I thought I was going to run probably about 7.15 to 7.25 for the 100K. And that's kind of where I felt like my fitness was. Uh, and yeah, so I, I otherwise I had a great time. Uh, and, and I mean, Hoka is just, it's just amazing their support for, for the ultra trail community. Yeah. Now, when, as you mentioned your hamstring there, when you're running an ultra, how do you know the difference between when to push through a bad patch and when it's safe for the pull out. Now, I've seen you going through a bad patch and you just keep going and going and going. So I know that if you say that that you have to pull out, there's something really, really bad. But it must be a very, very hard yeah. thing to do. Even, you know, especially when you put oh, yeah. so much into what you do. Like like running is, is your life. And how do you know the difference when it's kind of safer to knock a one? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, they actually interviewed me after I dropped, and and I talked about that. I said it's it's hard for me when when I'm mentally wired to push through anything and any level of pain. It's it's hard for me to feel and possible injury and to be able to assess during the race that oh my gosh, you know, I could have a stress fracture in my hip. You know, it's like, is that really, is that really a serious injury that I, I need to take, you know, seriously, or is it something that I can push through and that's going to get better? And so, yeah, when I started feeling pain in my hip, it was one of those things that was getting worse. Uh, and I'm thinking in my head, okay, this is not getting better. It's not like a muscle cramp or something, you know, that could relax and maybe work itself out. Um, I've had a hamstring issue. I, I tore this hamstring back in 2019 uh, very severely. And I, I'm, I'm somewhat, you know, more conscious and aware of that, that I don't want to push myself to the point of a complete tear, which, you know, could possibly be career ending. Um, and so I, I was able to, you know, after a couple miles in the race, I was like, I was like, this is a worsening pain. This is not a pain that's subsiding. Um, and so I, I felt okay with, um, with, you know, just pulling the plug and doing what's in the best interest of my health. So um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, I, I've, you know, at the 24 hour world championship, you go through uh, so many highs and lows in that. And, um, you know, I mean, I was feeling pain the first 30 miles and you're like, oh gosh, I'm feeling pain, you know, everywhere. And like, you know, and I'm able to push through that. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do, you know, when I, when I'm made to go long and I'm made to push through anything, I mean, that's, that's definitely hard. So you have raced at 50k 100k in 24 hours you you've won those races and you've also won a few ultra distance trail races so you cover all terrains and you seem to run anywhere how do you prepare yourself or what would you say would be the main differences between the strategies you apply when going into or preparing for and going into these different races say let's say the difference between 100k and 24 hours yeah yeah <laughs> it's pretty huge <laughs> i uh after running the hoka 100k event uh i realized like i've been away from the marathon for such a long time i've been away from the shorter races and uh trying to get my legs turning over like that again um it's just going to be a process and and take time but yeah i mean i would say i would say for the 100 the 50k to 100k you have to really train more like a marathoner and uh you know circumstances had allowed i would have done like a marathon and during my my build up to the 100k uh and and actually when i when i won the 100k world title back in 2015 I had done a half marathon and a marathon during my, my build-up to the 100K World Championship. So uh, not only was I really well-trained over like a four-month period, but I had raced. I had raced and I had already gotten my legs and my mind into that mindset of, you know, turning over fast. So I, I definitely felt rusty for the, 100, the Hoka 100K event. Um, and I, I think for the 24-hour event, and that you have a you have a little bit more leeway. Uh, you don't have to be in your tip top speed shape. Uh, and so I really I'm really able to just focus more on training for something like that, uh, and then do the marathon 50k. You know during that three to six weeks before it. 
and and yeah it's it's really more mental the 24 hour event is definitely much more mental and uh being structurally healthy and strong and just putting in a solid aerobic base so and how would your nutritional plan change for those two different events? What did you do during the Hoka event that you might not do during the 24-hour race? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I think for 50K, mar- marathon to 100K, you can pretty much just get away with gels and water and sports drink. Uh, you don't really have to mix up your nutrition as much. Uh, when when you're going for 24 hours, obviously you're having you're having to go much further distance. And at some point, I start to need solids, and I have to really mix up my drinks and you know what what I'm taking in, uh, taking caffeine. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so much more involved nutritionally. Uh, trying to mix up your nutrition. Yeah, I I actually when I when I set my first 24 hour world record. I pretty much got by on gels and water and sports drink uh, and, and didn't really have to mix things up as much. Uh, but, but obviously, you know, sometimes, sometimes you don't know what you're going to get in a 24 hour race. And uh, when I set the, the world record at the world championship, um, I had to mix up my nutrition a whole lot more just because I had a lot more GI issues and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't let that, I don't let things like that get me down. Uh, I, if, if, you know, foot problems, GI problems, having to go take a shower and change, uh, I'm somebody that's just so like even kill, like just so easy going that I, I expect that stuff to happen. Uh, and so when it does happen, I don't really let it get, get me flustered. Um, I mean, I pushed through so many challenges for my, my 24 hour world record that, uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. I had like 56 minutes of time where, uh, trying to troubleshoot nutrition and, uh, just so many things. So, um, see, I think that's 24 hours is a much more involved and strategic event. So with 2019, you had quite a busy year, 2020, because of what happened with the COVID pandemic, everything was kind of thrown up in the air. How did you stay motivated knowing that you might not know when your next race would be? <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I, I think I, I reached a, I reached a point last summer where uh, after so many race cancellations, it was, it really broke me down emotionally and physically. And I had to take a break back in July uh, and then I just had to reassess my goals and, you know, what I'm wanting to do with my running. And uh, we're fortunate that we had a couple of races happen in the fall uh, here in the United States that uh, kind of gave me a bit more motivation uh, to train every day. And so, um, so, so yeah, it's, I, I found that I had to kind of reframe my how I view running uh, I mean, I love to run in the first place. I mean, even without races, I, you know, last year found out that I just enjoy being outside. I enjoy nature, breathing the fresh air. So I, I feel like I'm so programmed from my routine that of running twice a day, every day, that just having that kind of structure in my daily routine uh, really helped me to cope during the pandemic last year. So that's good advice. You mentioned having your routine and sticking to it. And chances are that yep. that is what has helped you get through it. And I suppose for people who 
didn't have something else other than work. They didn't have any other activities. They're the ones who probably found it impacted their lives that bit more. You had running as an escape. Yeah, yeah, and um, I like I I mean running to me is like breathing breathing the air or uh, brushing your teeth twice a day. Uh, I feel like it's just part of my routine. It's part of what I do, and uh, I just found you know um, solace in being able to keep up my routine of running twice a day and being outside and. Another thing, I, another thing I wanted to ask you was about the psychology of going into a long race. When you mentioned you don't do any exceptionally long runs, what does it feel like when you're going into a race? Are you thinking, oh, I've 24 hours of this? Or how do you feel at the start? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, obviously, obviously, I can't, I can't train... I can't run 167 miles in a day to train for 167 miles in a day. I mean, that's just, I can't, I can't run that much, you know, (laughs) in training. So I, I see, I see the cumulative volume. Obviously I, I don't, I don't think that how you do is dependent on one run or back to back long runs. And I see it as the cumulative volume that you put over a long period of time. Uh, so for example, for the 24 hour world championship, I had a 15 week buildup, uh, of cumulative volume for the 24 hour world championship. So I had about a month of just easy aerobic running and then about 11 to 12 weeks of starting to put in quality work for the world championship. And so think of it, you know, as bricks to build a house. If you had a choice between the three races, the 50 K, 100 K and 24 hours, Three of them on the same day. Which one would you pick? I'd pick the twenty-four hour world championship. <laughs> I think I'm. I think my sweet spot as a runner is a hundred miles and beyond. Uh, I just feel really, really comfortable after a hundred miles. Uh, and as as we were talking about, and um, that I think the difference for me is I'm I'm not beating myself down with my training. Uh, with single extreme long runs that take a lot out of you and take a lot to recover from. Uh, And, you know, how I feel is I feel like I get stronger later in the race, whereas most people would be breaking down and uh, feeling more tired after 100 miles. Um, And I think a lot of it has to do with my training. And the athletes that we coach, a lot of them tell us that they – feel so much better with our training approach and they feel better later in races and I think it's because we're not beating I'm not beating myself down we don't beat down the athletes that we coach by doing these extreme long runs you know back-to-back long runs I think people are going into races tired and a little bit overtrained and they don't have that zip in their legs later in the race and I've trained my, my body and my mind that uh, when, when I hit later in the race, I, I start, it's like I put the hammer down. I can hit 150 miles in a race and I can go to a whole other gear uh, speed wise. And it's because I've trained my body to, for speed and to turn over when I'm tired. 
And um, if I if I was beating my body down all the time with like extreme long runs and back to back long runs, I probably would not have that zip in my legs. And so I'm just I go into races very fresh and fast and strong. And I've, you know, I've just got it figured out. And I, I think it, you know, it obviously shows, you know, when I go to these major international races that I'm just at a whole other level. So. And when you mention international races, do you have any strategies that you use when you're traveling? <laughs> De- definitely. Uh, when, when I start, when I traveled internationally, um, I think Comrades was the Comrades Marathon back in 2014, and um, so back at that time, I was working full time and I didn't want to take off as much time for my day job. And so I traveled like as close as I could to the race day and I ended up being jet lagged. I got the stomach virus and I was basically bedridden like the day before the race because I was so miserable from the jet lag and having a fever and all this and um, so I've learned from <laughs> my international experiences that for every time zone that I'm having to change, so it might be, you know, seven hours ahead or eight hours ahead, uh, that I plan my travel to get there, you know, a week or more in advance. Um, and I, I'm very considerate of the conditions. If a race is expected to be warm or humid, and uh, I definitely try to prepare as best as I can for those race conditions. Um, I, I, one example is I went and competed in Doha, Qatar uh, back in 2015 for the 50K World Championship. And um, it was very interesting because a lot of the men on our U.S. team, they were doing extreme heat training for that race. And I think that they, they kind of went into the race a little bit more tired. And um, But I've, I've trained for so many hot races throughout my career that I've kind of got my formula dialed in to be able to heat train for a race uh, without overcooking the goose. And so, uh, so I went into that race and, uh, you know, had, had traveled, you know, far enough in advance and got there and I felt really comfortable with the conditions. So I think a lot of what you learn for uh, preparing for races in different conditions is, you know, just trial and error. Uh, figuring out what works for you so great now i was going to ask you about tips for somebody starting out not running you've given an awful lot of tips there as you've been talking but was there one piece of advice that you could offer up to somebody who's maybe training for their first 24-hour race yeah i (laughs) i i'd recommend training like a marathoner uh train train in in a way that you know works for you and you don't really need to change much with your training for, for alters. I, I don't believe it. I, I believe, you know, through our life experiences, we can figure out uh, what works for us and to stick with that. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, the, the one thing that I do like to do is to do um, a marathon or a 50K uh, race three to six weeks out from that peak race. And use that as an opportunity to practice your hydration and nutrition and, and you know, just to get back into that race mode. And, and that's what I've really found helps me uh, be ready for peak effort. Do you know what your next race is going to be? <laughs> I, I really don't know at this point. Uh, I think I'm, I'm signed up for two races this year. And, uh, I'm signed up for Western States in June and UTMB in August. 
Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to recover from my hamstring injury at the moment. Uh, it's not, not a bad time to be taking a break and taking it easy on the training. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm just taking it easy right now. And, um, kind of kind of we're remodeling our house right now so I'm really kind of more focused on that so and before those dates there's the IAU virtual global solidarity run that's on the weekend of 20th and 21st of March that's a six hour virtual run so you might you might take part (laughs) in that one in between you're putting the bug in my ear. That that might be a good opportunity to compete too. So we'll we'll see how I'm doing at that yeah. time. Where you're living <laughs> at the moment, is it flat or hilly? Uh so we live in a valley and we're surrounded by mountains. So most of my daily running is on flat road and trail. Uh, but we're you know, we're within thirty minutes of being able to climb massive mountains. So uh so I'm, I'm pretty fortunate where we live right now. And, but we're, we're actually remodeling our house and we're thinking about moving a bit further south uh, to get into a warmer climate. So. <laughs> okay. Living where you're living and it's kind of hilly, if you were preparing for a 24-hour track race, would you think it's sufficient to train in your own locality or would you try and get yourself onto a track? Yeah, I, I did zero track training for my 24-hour world record on a track. In fact, I, I hadn't even been on a track since 2008. So I don't think that training on a track for a track ultra is necessary. <laughs> uh, I, I th- in fact, I actually think it kind of beats you up to, to train on a track for like a long run or an ultra. I think it just takes too much out of you so I, I just try to save myself for race day uh, doing that. I will say that one thing that I think is helpful uh, that I did before the 24-hour world championship is we went down to sea level. I think it was like maybe 10 days out from the race. And so I got kind of got used to a higher humidity and sea level, uh, being able to turn over a little bit faster. And so... Um, I think, you know, for I would definitely do that again for a world championship or a world record and um, trying to simulate the conditions that I'm going to be racing in. Um, so I think that's really helpful. Obviously, being at higher altitude like we are, that it's, it's, it's really difficult. You know, I mean, it's a different environment. But at the same time, I definitely think the higher altitude helps uh, just you know, there's a lot of science behind that. Um, but as far as preparing for the conditions and getting yourself to turn over better, I think it's better uh, to go down to lower altitude. So. Now, before we finish up, could you recommend a book or books for anyone starting out in ultra running or, or sport in general? Uh-huh. Uh, as far as like ultra books, I don't think I have any specific ultra books. Um, my first running book was Lore of Running by Timothy Noakes. And I got that when I was in junior high back in the 90s. And that book talked all about the Comrades Marathon and uh, famous ultra runners like Bruce Fordyce. Uh, so I want to say that it had any sort of like advice about how to train for ultras, but it just had like amazing stories and people of inspiration. 
Uh, and that kind of planted the seed in my head that I wanted to someday run an ultra. And if I was going to run an ultra, it was going to be the Comrades Marathon. Uh, so, so yeah, definitely War of Running is a great book. Um, a book that, that we have that we've always liked is Advanced Marathoning by Pete Fitzinger. Uh, that, was, that was a huge inspiration back when I was a marathoner. Um, and I, we've really kind of taken what, what he wrote about in his book and um, Jack Daniels and Lydiard. I love Lydiard stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like our training approach is kind of like a bunch of people all combined into one. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty eccentric person, too. And um, I like to run at all times a day and, you know, could, could be going running at nighttime, you know, at midnight or something. So I think, you know, just depending on the person, you know, reading, reading those books is great, but also going with the flow of your yourself and your uh being able to, through trial and error, figure out what works for you, your own biorhythms, your sleep, your nutrition, your training. Have a coach. <laughs> have a coach, you know. Have a, <laughs> They're great recommendations. And if you weren't running, what sport would you be doing? That's a great question. Uh, I, I actually, before, or around the time that I was thinking about getting into ultra running, I decided to teach myself how to race walk. And I was getting on the treadmill and had mirrors around our treadmill and I watched videos and I was learning the race walking technique. And I actually felt like, oh my gosh, I think I could do this competitively. And uh, so I, I, had a, I had a moment there where I was like, do I go to race walking or do I go to ultra running? Uh, and I decided, I said, I'm going to try ultra running first. And if that doesn't work out, then I'll go back to race walking. So, uh, so, so here we are. It, it, the ultra running turned out pretty good. So. And you have a fallback plan. <laughs> yep. well, I'm conscious now of your time. So I think we'll leave it at that. We've been talking for quite a while. Is there anything else you want to maybe? Uh, oh, you, you have a website with your coaching on it as well. What's it? Rumacamille.com? So yeah, if anybody yeah, wants to our, check you out. coaching website, runwithcanil.com. And uh, we, we've had a lot of fun with it. Uh, we started our coaching website in 2018. Uh, I had had so many people reaching out that they wanted, they wanted me to coach them. And when we started our coaching website, it has just exploded. And uh, we coach people all over the world. I do phone consultations. I, it's been really, really fun for me. You know, I could be talking to somebody in New Zealand and uh, I mean, they're, they're excited to, to chat with me. And so that, that's really cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we've coached people to like national records and like, you know, it's like every, we've coached so many people that are running like Spartathlon and 24 hour world championship and uh, just all different events. So uh yeah, I mean, I, I've got, you know, it's, it's fun. It's fun for me to have, you know, my own personal achievements, but I am just as much thrilled to help other people do amazing things. I mean, I, I'll fall, I'll fall out of bed, you know, wake up one day and somebody, you know, finish, you know, fourth at Spartathlon or something, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's super cool. I mean, I just get as much satisfaction out of that. So. That's good fuel for your run. And as we said earlier, you might have a word with Connor, that's Connor Holt, and we might get Connor onto a podcast to talk a little bit about training and the specifics of training for the different disciplines. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you want to chat with him right now? 
If he's available, I can talk to him. We then lost the connection, but I have since managed to interview Connor, and I'll publish that interview at a later date. During the interview with Connor, we talked about coaching and training, and we also discussed some other stuff relevant to high-performance athletes, such as sponsorship and athlete contracts.